Welcome to Why Is This Good, a podcast by the Naples Writers Workshop. I'm Christine and I'm here with John. Hey, John. Hello. Well, it's my turn. And in keeping with, I believe, what was my last selection, I have resorted to Googling short stories that were later turned into films because I've run out of ways to come across good writing. And unlike John, I don't sit around reading for pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) You'd think I would. No, I think this is also a cool way to kind of compare because after we did uh, Arrival, you know, and the story of your life, that was really cool to see, you know, how a story like that can be turned into a film and how both can be really good, but as always, how the original is so much better. So that's how I came across this story. It is Brokeback Mountain by Annie Prue. It was published originally in The New Yorker as a standalone in 1997, but Brokeback Mountain is the title of a short story within a collection of short stories called Close Range. Wyoming stories. And I, if I'm remembering this correctly too, according to my notes, the overall collection was, I think, nominated for a Pulitzer. <laughs> that would have been our second. Yeah, it must be nice, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so Brokeback Mountain, Refresh Your Memory, is about two cowboys fall in love. What Jack remembered and craved in a way he could neither help nor understand was the time that distant summer on Brokeback when Ennis had come up behind him and pulled him close, the silent embrace satisfying some shared and sexless hunger. They had stood that way for a long time in front of the fire, its burning, tossing ruddy chunks of light, the shadow of their bodies, a single column against the rock. The minutes ticked by from the round watch in Ennis's pocket, from the sticks in the fire settling into coals, Stars bit through the wavy heat layers above the fire. Ennis's breath came slow and quiet. He hummed, rocked a little in the sparklight, and Jack leaned against the steady heartbeat, the vibrations of the humming like faint electricity. And standing, he fell into sleep. That was not sleep, but something else drowsy and tranced, until Ennis, dredging up a rusty but still usable phrase from the childhood time before his mother died, said, Time to hit the hay, cowboy. I gotta go. Come on, you're sleeping on your feet like a horse. And gave Jack a shake, a push, and went off in the darkness. Jack heard his spurs tremble as he mounted, the words see you tomorrow, and the horse's shuddering snort, grind of hoof on stone. Later, that dozy embrace solidified in his memory as a single moment of artless, charmed happiness in their separate and difficult lives. Nothing marred it, even the knowledge that Ennis would not then embrace him face to face because he did not want to see nor feel that it was Jack he held. And maybe, he thought, they'd never get much farther than that. Let be, let be. You say Ennis? Yeah, what were you saying? Ennis. I don't remember how it was said in the movie now. I was thinking about this story because I remember when we read The Story of Your Life, we both agreed that we kind of wished we'd read this story before seeing right. we had ever seen the movie. And I was trying to think if that was true of this as well. And it's, I don't right. know how I would have read this story. Now, Brokeback Mountain, I saw the movie, what is this? It's like 15 yeah. years old. I saw it a million years ago. So it is part of my history. So I have right. no idea how I would have read this story had I not seen it, yeah. been exposed to it as that movie. When I read this, of course, it was like, yeah, no wonder this this was opted for film too, because there's a tone in this story that was pretty well picked up for the movie. It's a quiet story. There's not a ton of dialogue. It's a quiet film. There's not a ton of dialogue. They're alone on a mountain together and they're both like trapped in their own heads. And so Annie Prue is doing like the bulk of the heavy lifting, getting into both their heads as the like omniscient close narrator and shifting. Like this is what Ennis is thinking. 
and then this is what Jack is thinking. Like she's she's just kind of like in there, you know. But this is very much a story too of two characters that never fully express themselves to one another, you know. So that's why the narrator is so powerful here. That's the difficulty of adapting something like this to film to imply all of these thoughts through acting when you can't say them. There's uh, when they say goodbye after the summer on Brokeback, and they're like they didn't know how to say goodbye. They didn't know what to do in those moments, and suddenly right. they're this is said suddenly they're 40 feet apart and all I could do is drive away. Yeah. So he's driving away and all of a sudden it describes this really intense physical manifestation of regret or fear or something. He's, within a mile, Enos yeah. felt like someone was pulling his guts out hand over hand a yard at a time. He stopped at the side of the road and in the whirling new snow tried to puke, but nothing came up. He felt about as bad as he ever had and it took a long time for the feeling to wear off. This is such a good description, first off, but what's fascinating and to play to to your point about them, they're communicating and how they fail to communicate is he then later relays that story to Jack and the way he tells it. It's like one of those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, he's admitting it's like it stands out because it's one of the few times he's admitting his feelings in a strange way. He says, it's been four years and they get back together again. He says, that summer, said Enos, when we split up after we got paid out, I had gut cramps so bad I pulled over and tried to puke. Thought I ate something bad at that place in Du Bois. Took me about a year to figure out it was that I shouldn't have let you out of my sights. Too late then by a long, long while. That's like one of those rare moments when he is admitting how he felt and we got to see it before, which is, I like that. I thought it was really cool how she did that. Yeah. I just love the writing. So it's quiet and all this kind of thing. But I think it's beautiful prose. The section that I read, there's like these long winding sentences, tons of commas. It's almost like Hatchet or Into the Wild. Stories like that where you do have just like a a one main character and they're like in touch with the land. It lends itself to a quiet story. And then lots of scene description and lots of internal thought description. And I think I like stories like that. Like a lot, not a lot's happening, but a lot's happening in their head. writing is really really well done i mean we should at least mention that the dialect which is very subtly done there's like two or three things that she does in the dialogue to suggest the wyoming accent right although there's specific mention when jack moves to texas how his the way he says cow changes and the way he says wife changes it's like now he's speaking with that texas accent he says cow and wife (laughs) but yeah it's it's subtle but it's effective and the narrator has the same kind of tone that they do. I'm really fascinated by this narrator because it is, like you said, it's omniscient. It's not really in anybody's head, but it yeah. tends to be in Enos's head more. Yeah, because he lives. Yeah, it's his point of view. Like, we never see Jack's wife on, she's only referred to her on the phone, never in scene. So it's always, they're always with Enos and like Jack comes into his life and leaves it and that's like mostly following him. Like, there's no scene of him getting beaten, of Jack getting right. beaten because it all happens off scene or off the page so in a lot of ways the narrative voice tends towards enos but i was i was curious about like this one and near the beginning when they're meeting with the guy gives him the job on broke back yeah and uh, he's like going running through like what they need to do you know gotta camp out with the sheep you gotta come pick up your supplies and then when he stops talking right at the end of that paragraph this looks like it's coming from the narrator and it says pair of deuces going nowhere and i was like whose point of view is that where's that Uh, coming from yeah it's at the end of that paragraph and like outside of dialogue yeah it's like it feels like it should be the narrator but it's the kind it's a very uh 
it's editorial it's judging yeah. the, the two characters it's commenting on what was just said yeah exactly and it's like okay these two kids aren't going anywhere it's like it feels like it's the thoughts of the guy who's given them the job but it's not not quite it's something else right so it's a really it's it's interesting so there's a point in the middle of the story where enos says he says uh, i goddamn hate it that you're going to you're going to drive away in the morning i'm going back to work but if you can't fix it you got to stand it yeah and that's a direct quote from enos and at the end of the story the line it ends on is there was some open space between what he knew and what he tried to believe but nothing could be done about it if you can't fix it you've got to stand it so now the narrator is directly quoting him right these are ways in which the narrator is even though it's written as an omniscient separate narrator it is enos in some ways right so i'm just fascinated by that the way that interplay of the narrator and then the characters We talk about that all the time, like with our workshop, that it can be done, but it's almost hard to instruct how to do it. You just recognize when it's done well. This like (laughs) slipping in and out of points of view with a narrator that knows everything and like when to do it and how to do it. Obviously, that's the strength of this story, which like we pointed out is about two men that aren't expressing themselves to each other. So like we this wouldn't be a story if we only got one's perspective, you know, be a very different story. It'd be like, a why doesn't he like me story? <laughs> yeah, if it was first person Enos, it was like yeah, it'd be so annoying. That summer, I went up to broke, but you know, yeah, yeah. It'd be, it'd I went up to Brokeback Mountain, and I was like super into this guy. <laughs> yeah, and instead, it's like we get the privilege of knowing that these men are essentially on the same page. Yeah, but like society and whatever else is crippling this situation for them. I've talked before about how if the story if it uses a metaphor, the metaphor works best if it comes from the world that we talked being about described. this in our. Life last episode and also five was the last ago. episode <laughs> recently and in an episode a million years ago but there's uh you know the little little things uh when Enos confronts Jack about Mexico, he says uh, he was cutting fence now, trespassing in the shooting zone. You know, that is uh, the kind of metaphor you're going to use in Wyoming, right? Yeah. And even the description of what happens between Enos and his wife, Alma, it's like slow corrosion work between Enos and Alma, no real trouble, just widening water. That line widening water yeah. feels, it's it's a natural thing. You know, it's like a landscape kind of metaphor. So it feels very of the place too. Right. It's like those ways in which the narrator isn't merely omniscient. The narrator is is like speaking out of the land, you know, speaking. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Setting. This line was really interesting. It's after, uh, so Jack knees, this is like the last day on Brokeback, right? And okay. Jack knees him in the nose, then Enos punches him. And he said, Enos had suddenly swung from the deck and laid the ministering angel out in the wild columbine, wings folded. That is an interesting image. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like these sentences for me are like a dime a dozen. Like she's like, she's killing it. She is. And he's fucking killing killing it. it. Yeah. She was doing great. And obviously like we didn't get into that here as much as we did with our last story where we talked a lot about like the richness of voice and language, but choices like that are the ones that you do it again and again. And like, that's what you remember about her tone of voice and her skill with all this. I imagine too, like if they're all set in Wyoming that you're getting like tons of beautiful descriptors like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this story, I, it'd be interesting to read the, the whole, yeah, the entire collection, the entire 
book is subtitled Wyoming Stories, just to see how the narrator is. Right. If it's the oh, same narrator point. throughout, if the same omniscient narrator, if it dives into first person, like how she handles that. This almost reminds me of um, Lauren Groff. Oh, yeah. That narrator. A little bit. That was first person in hers, wasn't it? A lot of her stuff is first person, but a lot of it is also like, yeah, that third removed. But I don't know. There's something about like the uh, authority that it's written with, like the authority on the character's thoughts in the situation and how it'll play out. Like there's an authority to this story as well in the sense that the narrator knows how this ends. The narrator knows that they don't get what they want. One of them dies. It never comes to fruition. So it's intentionally chosen, you know, to tell us that story that way. It's not present tense. It's hindsight. There's like an authority that way. It's like, I'm all knowing, but I'm going to unspool it for you so that you appreciate it, how they lived it. You don't start this story and say, this is a story about a man that gets killed for being gay and how they never got to be together. You know, she's like, this is what happened. This is what happened next. Now I'm going to show you this. And now I'm going to show you this so that by the end, you're as upset about it as Ennis would have been. It is interesting that the New Yorker version doesn't have the first section where we see Ennis remember. Like he had a dream about Jack the night before and he wakes Maybe up like happy. Maybe they related then to these other stories. No, no, no. That was apparently uh, not printed. It was uh, left out. It was just an accident. Somebody oh, screwed up and left it out. That's weird. But that section, like that opening section kind of frames the whole thing as as an Enos story. This is right. about Enos's memory of Jack. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And that kind of gives excuse to the way the narrator focuses on Enos. Okay, that makes sense. Doesn't necessarily visit Texas. We don't get scenes in Texas. We always right. get scenes of Jack back in Wyoming visiting. So my takeaway from this, I wanted to read like one section toward the end. It doesn't give anything away. It's on the bottom of 281. But this is from a scene where Ennis has gone to Jack's home and like the parents are being weird, but they're like, you can look at his room if you want. (laughs) And he starts like picking through stuff. I just wanted to read it for the language and everything. The shirt seemed heavy until he saw there was another shirt inside it. The sleeves carefully worked down inside Jack's sleeves. It was his own plaid shirt. Lost, he thought. Long ago in some damn laundry, his dirty shirt, the pocket ripped buttons missing stolen by jack and hidden here inside jack's own shirt the pair like two skins one inside the other two and one he pressed his face into the fabric and breathed in slowly through his mouth and nose hoping for the faintest smoke and mountain sage and salty sweet stink of jack but there was no real scent only the memory of it the imagined power of brokeback mountain of which nothing was left but what he held in his hands Okay, touching for a million reasons. And I think my only takeaway from this, because I'm realizing more and more, (laughs) that like we can't like prescribe ways to mimic what's done well about these things. We can only talk about them ad nauseum and hope that you like glean something that if you can't put it into use immediately, yeah, like it becomes part of your approach somehow. But anyway, obviously what I like about this story so much, going back to it being like a love story, but it's about two characters that want the same thing that they can't and they can't have it. So like that's a really powerful premise and it hits at all these things that i love in stories you know stories told in hindsight nostalgic stories sad stories all these kinds of things i like but i think that's kind of the crux of it so i think you could easily think of you know two characters that want the same thing but can't have it one character that wants something and never gets it like that's the really powerful premise that you can adopt a million ways. doesn't have to be about wanting another person. You know, like maybe there's a place in your life you want to go back to. Maybe your childhood home burned down or like your child is dead or 
like you miss like a moment in time with your sibling when things are still good. Like whatever it is, like that pining. But there's, you know, something to be said for knowing going into the story that they don't get that thing. Oh, yeah. You know, and I think that's what adds to this the power of the narrator here. It's about trying to have it. Yeah, it's about trying to have it. And then, you know, the last line of the story is if you can't fix it, you've got to stand it. Like we said. I mean, that's a powerful premise too. Yeah. Just learning how to deal with whatever bullshit. So that's my takeaway. And I can, like I said, think of a million ways that I can use that. And it's basically like for me as common in my list of plots is like man versus man, man versus self, man versus <laughs> nature. Man will be something you can't have and never gets. That is like the scholars will say something about me. There you go. In that context. Yeah. What is your takeaway, John? Uh, my takeaway is what I was saying about the narration. I love the idea of making the narrator an omniscient apparent personless kind of right. supposedly invisible narrator to be like an expression of the story. It's like the story speaking, the story speaking itself into existence, you know? Right. The narrator embodies through the way in which it speaks, the place, the characters, everything that the story is made up of. Right. There's something powerful about that idea in my mind and I, I, I like to explore it. And this story does a fantastic job of doing it. Right. So pat on the back, Annie Prue, good job or whatever. Yeah. You should get that second Pulitzer. You <laughs> yeah. haven't already. She might have, because she got one in the early 90s for shipping news. And then, uh, oh, I got to read that then, I guess. I don't know if she got another one after that, but if she was close with this one, geez. Yeah, it must be good to just, it must feel good to just like know you're that good. <laughs> yeah, really. I tell myself that, but you know, imagine it being true. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. If you enjoyed this episode, consider joining our Patreon. Your support helps us keep the show running. Find out more at patreon.com slash whyisthisgoodpodcast. And for industry news, writing tips, and great short fiction, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Naples Writers Workshop. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at napleswritersworkshop.com.